0: We will continue our series this morning in the Gospel of Mark, and we will consider Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. So let me read these verses for us. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel." And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word. You are the king over all things. And you have announced your kingdom in your word with a simple message. Repent and believe. By nature, we don't like that message. By nature, we are alienated and hostile in mind against you so work in us this morning grant us the faith to believe in you and the will to turn from our old ways and turn in repentance to you and we pray this in your name amen well maybe you saw the joke that was going around online uh, this joke that uh, uh, um, that men think about the roman empire at least once a week I don't know if you've seen that. It was, it's a trend. I'm sure it's a trend on TikTok. I'm, I'm too old for TikTok, so I don't know. But this was going around online, and, and people were asking uh, each other about it. And we saw uh, wives would text their husbands and share screenshots of like, hey, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And, and so many of them would say, yeah, I, I think about it a few times a week. Yeah. It's like, you know, the glory of the Roman Empire is eternal, honey. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. So that's what these are saying. So the, all these screenshots are happening. All these... All these uh, men are talking about how they think about the Roman Empire and the fall of Rome. And I even Googled it, and uh, I saw all these articles. So the New York Times, the Rolling Stones of all places, they have these articles about about this. And and that's actually when you know that a joke is dead. If if the Rolling Stones uh, shares their opinion about something, that's how you know uh, it's dead. So... I don't know if I necessarily fit into that category of of always thinking about the Roman Empire. Uh, I don't know if you do. Interested to hear. But I was thinking about it this week, especially as I was preparing uh, for this sermon. And it's hard not to think about it given the time period that we're in. We're in the first century. But I was thinking more so about the beginning of the Roman Empire, the birth of the Roman Empire as, as Julius Caesar, he crosses the Rubicon. And as he does so, uh, some think he might have proclaimed or might have said and quoted uh, that the die is cast. You know, he, he knew what laid ahead of him. He knew what would happen as he crossed over, breaking Roman law, bringing his military with him. The die is cast. Civil war was upon them. Or how his, his nephew and his heir, uh, Octavius, he would rise up and actually become the first Roman emperor. He would defeat all their enemies. He would squash the other uh, the Civil War and everyone else that uh, would rise up against him, and he solidified his empire. And so he proclaimed, uh, and his proclamation as he took over control, was actually to assume and to take a name upon himself of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, which is the majestic one or the, the venerable one, the great one, and so it's, it's incredible that this great, majestic Caesar Augustus, he's actually the emperor at the time when the Son of God becomes man. At the time when Jesus is born. And you think about his proclamation, proclaiming him to be the great one, the great king, the great emperor of all the earth, yet unbeknownst to him, and of no significance to him whatsoever, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords was born. And so now, and we, we get to our passage, after Jesus was anointed and as he was uh, sent uh, by the Spirit to begin his ministry, now he brings the message of a kingdom. And he uh, shares and he makes his own proclamation. But he comes not as a conquering king. He, he will, Christ will come as a conquering king when he makes all things new but in this first coming, he comes as a suffering servant. And his message is different from all the conquering kings of the earth. His message is different from all the emperors of Rome. His message is to repent and believe in the gospel. That's his message. That's the kingdom of God that has now finally come near. And that's what we want to look at this morning. But before we get into this passage itself, Mark, he gives us a small little detail. He, he starts in verse 14. He says that now all this happened after John was arrested, referring to John the Baptist, of course. Mark, he gives us a small detail, but he doesn't give us everything we'd want to know, we will learn more about what happens later on in Mark, and we know from other gospels as well, but Mark chapter 6, we'll learn and get more information about how and why and what happened to John the Baptist after his arrest. But Mark is giving us the historical situation. John is now gone, Jesus is now on the scene, and he, in a subtle way, raises the question for us, and he foreshadows what's to come. What's to the, what's the happen to this kingdom that's here? Well, if this is how the Messiah's forerunner, if this is how the Messiah's messenger who prepared his way, if that's how he was treated, how is the Messiah himself going to be treated? And so we know that there will be some conflict ahead of him. Nonetheless, Jesus begins his ministry here in Galilee. And he begins it with this message. Mark gives us the summary of what Jesus would have taught, what he would have proclaimed as he came onto the scene. He would say that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. That is the message. This is Jesus' ministry. And we'll see that this message, it includes a call to action, and it requires a response And so with our time this morning, I want to consider those three things. I want to consider Jesus' message here in 14 and 15, and then I want to consider the calling he has and the response that he requires. So we'll look at those three things this morning. First, this message. Let's consider this message. The time is fulfilled. This is the appointed time that God had set, and now it has finally come near. So the time is up. This is what Jesus is telling us. There's a shift that is happening. It is like the crossing of the Rubicon. We, we use that phrase to talk about a, a, uh, an event or a, a choice where there is no coming back. Well, there is no coming back, Jesus says. The time is now. This is a turning point in history. This is a fork in the road. And decisions will need to be made. And in fact, we know this is the most important decision that you can make. A decision about who is Jesus. A decision about Christ. So much is packed into this message. So I want to break it down almost word for word. We'll go phrase by phrase through this in, in verse 15. So he says, he starts, the time is fulfilled. That is to say, we can consider all of human history, we can consider it in light of this event here. And that's easier for us to do. Because we know our calendars, our entire time system is based around this this event. Everything before the birth of Christ we refer to as B.C. and everything after the birth of Christ, A.D. Anno Domini, the, in the year of our Lord. Now I I know it's very fashionable to use uh, B.C.E. before Common Era and C.E. Common Era uh, to refer to this, uh, to, to refer to these two time periods, but really that doesn't. Get around the issue. What was the event that brought us from before the common era into the common era? And even if you want to use it, I won't push back, but in my head, I always translate those as before the Christian era and Christian era. So uh, really, there's no getting around it. But we know this is the advent of Christ, this is his first coming. Christ has come. Uh, Jesus, our Lord, uh, the Son of God, he was born. In the appointed time set by God. And this is how scripture refers to this event. All of the Old Testament is pointing forward, it's pointing ahead to Christ. Then we have the Gospels, which proclaim what Christ did. We have the the Apostles, who teach what Christ uh, did. And all of the writings of the Apostles point back. So the Old Testament points forward, the New Testament points back. All of it focuses on Christ and what he did. So we see this everywhere. Just a, a few examples we looked at and talked about Psalm 2 last week, where we saw the decree that God made. the Lord said to my Lord, uh, "You are my son, today I have begotten you." And we see how uh, that was, was quoted and, and alluded to in Jesus baptism. This psalm it was pointing forward to the day when God would anoint His Son as the Messiah. And so here we are. That day is here. We also know this in all the prophets. We can think of so many examples, but all those wonderful prophecies, those promises that we, we love to, to quote and think about when we get to the Christmas season. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given, Isaiah says. Isaiah elsewhere says that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. All of it pointing ahead to the birth of Christ and to his coming. And then from the New Testament onwards, it points us back to what he did. Galatians 4 uh, tells us exactly this. Galatians 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, that's the phrase, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of the woman, born under the law, This is who Jesus is. This is the fullness of time. This is the time that God had appointed when he would send his son to begin his mission and his ministry. And so we're told, here he is. The time is come. The time is fulfilled. And with that, the kingdom of God draws near. The kingdom that is not of this world, the kingdom's not of this world, but it is here nonetheless, a kingdom that is greater than all the kingdoms of the earth, whose ruler is, is mighty and mightier than all the rulers of the earth. He is mightier than Caesar. He is more majestic and more worthy of praise and greater than Augustus himself. And he's already proved that he is mightier and he will continue to prove. We talked about that word. Jesus is mightier. John says, one coming after me is mightier than I. Jesus already proved his might and his power in the wilderness, fighting against Satan and his temptations. He will go on to prove his his mightiness as we go through the book of Mark. He is mighty. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here. And so what is the message of this coming kingdom? What is the declaration of this kingdom? Jesus says, repent and believe. That is what's required of you if you are to come into this kingdom. It's an interesting message. He makes no proclamation about himself, but he tells us something of the nature of this kingdom and he tells us, what God and what He would require of each and every one of us to repent and believe. It is the kingdom of God, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the focal point. And because of that, because all this is wrapped up in these two words, it's it's important that we consider what those two words are and what they mean. So these words, repent, believe, they're of course verbal forms, they're imperatives, they're commands as nouns we talk about them as repentance and faith those are those two things so what is repentance what does it mean to repent and what is faith what does it mean to put our faith in in something what does it mean to believe in something and most importantly how do these two things relate to one another why these two words why was this jesus message Because in these two words, it summarizes for us what God would require of his people that they'd be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, out of the kingdom of the world and be brought into the kingdom of God. This is what God requires of each and every one of us that we would be saved. And the good news that both faith and repentance, they are saving graces. This is the saving grace of God toward us toward his people. So repentance is a saving grace. Repentance is when a sinner has a true sense of his sin. How does a sinner get a true sense of his sin? It's by looking to God, considering him, considering his holiness, who is perfectly righteous, but also understanding not only his perfect righteousness, but his loving mercy toward us in Christ. So repentance is a proper understanding, then, of the sinfulness of sin. And with grief and hatred of that sin, a turning away from it. So the sin that he used to enjoy so much, now it is has an unpleasant odor. It, it, it has no taste anymore. It, it reeks to him. He, he hates it. He turns from it. And he also turns towards something else. That's the other word that we have. He turns away in repentance. He turns towards in faith. Faith in Jesus is also a saving grace. In faith, the Christian receives and rests in Christ alone for his salvation as he is freely offered to him in the gospel. And so there's a turning away from and there's a turning toward. That's repentance. That's faith. But we must not overcomplicate this issue. And I don't want in our discussion to to aid in doing that. I don't want to overcomplicate it. Sometimes we can put too much emphasis on one or the other. Sometimes we can get too wrapped up in our heads, but they go inseparably together. And that's what I want us to see. Faith and repentance, this is the work of God's Spirit in your life as we grow, continue to grow, to turn away from sin, turn toward Christ. And so I love how John Murray puts it I think he puts it best in his work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And he writes that the faith that is unto salvation, the faith that leads to salvation, is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance and repentance is permeated with saving faith. So you can see how each of those describe the other. They go together. They're joined together and they should never be separated. Repentance is the, the emptying of the hand that would hold on to sin and the old self. And then faith is the taking those empty hands free from the burden of sin and holding on and clinging to Christ. That's the picture that we have here. Of repentance and faith. With those things, we turn away and we turn toward a turning away from sin, a turning toward the Savior of sinners. And we must do so, God says, because the kingdom of God is here, the time is fulfilled, and those who would belong to Christ must turn away and turn toward. That is the message of Christ's kingdom. That is the message. Repent and believe. But how does that work itself out in our lives? What does that look like? I love how Mark goes to the next episode, the next story, with the the calling of the first disciples. And so let's look at that calling now. And that's the second thing we see in this this larger passage is the calling. So he continues the story and we, we see how this message of the kingdom, of this calling... Of those who would repent and believe, this is what happens. Jesus makes this call, uh, makes this calling to his first disciples, and it's a simple call. He says, "Follow me." So Jesus walks along the sea, and he finds Simon, who we know is uh, is named Peter, and his brother Andrew. He also sees the brothers James and John, and we know from other gospel accounts this would not have been the first moment that they would have come in contact with with jesus but this was the moment uh, when he's calling them they would have known him uh, already but now he is calling them and uh, calling them to himself and we can make a few observations about this calling notice first of all that it's a forceful calling this can be somewhat lost in translation and it's, it's not that Jesus is shouting at the top of his lungs. That's not what's happening here. But this was a command. He was getting their attention. Hey, Peter, follow me. James, John, it's time. Follow me. So there is no, sorry, I, I didn't hear you. There is no, well, give me a second. Give me a moment. Let me just get my things in order. There, there's none of that. There is no, sorry, honey, I would have done the dishes if, if I would have heard you, but I didn't. Rats, you know, I'm, I'm upset about it too. There's, there's none of that. I always have to think of my grandfather. He was, he was the king of this. And I can remember catching him a few times when grandma would start talking and, and uh, if he was having none of it, he'd slowly reach up and he'd just turn that hearing aid all the way down. <laughs> Sorry, honey, I didn't hear you. There's none of that. That's not what's happening here. There's no, I didn't hear you. There's no, well, I would have if I would have known. None of that. It's a clear command, clear call to action, follow me. And we also see what this calling was to. It was a clear command, but it was a clear command to follow a person follow Christ as disciples to their teacher and to their master. That is what we are called to do. We are called to sit at the feet of Jesus to learn from Him. Now, this is what we do when we do the work of theology. The work of theology, far from being just an ivory tower, fun uh, hobby to do, this is the calling of all of us as disciples of Christ. Joel Beakey, he makes this profound point. He says that the training of the first Christian theologians began... When they heard Christ say, Follow me. This was the beginning of their training as theologians. And so, fundamental to being a Christian, then, is being a follower of Christ. Pretty obvious point, but we can forget it, can't we? That to be a Christian is to be a follower of Christ. Are you a Christian? Well, then that means that you follow a person, that he is your teacher. He is your Lord. He is your Master. It is Him who we learn from. It's a call to follow me. And so what do we do then when we follow Christ? Well, that's the work of the kingdom. Repent and believe day by day. That is what we are called to do, to follow Christ. And so Jesus commands the, the disciples, come follow me. And what does he tell them in particular? He says that I will make you become fishers of men. So Simon and Andrew, they're fishermen. James and John, the same. They were fish fishers. But now Jesus is going to make them people fishers. Well, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? They're, they have these big nets. They're going to run around and snatch people and and grab them and bring them into the kingdom? Not exactly, but kind of, sort of. This was the calling. Remember the message, the kingdom is here, and so repent and believe. This is God's kingdom, a kingdom of light that will wage war against the kingdoms of darkness in the world. And so Jesus, the king of this kingdom, he is calling faithful servants to join him in the work, of fishing people out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing them into the kingdom of light by going out into all the world, proclaiming the message and the good news of Christ. Just like God preached through Noah, and he preached to the people there, warning them of the judgment flood that was coming, now Jesus is calling his disciples to go and spread the news that God's kingdom is here. He's bringing judgment, flood judgment, as it were, against this wicked and evil world. And God's people are to fish people out of that wrath, bring them into God's kingdom. That's the picture we see here. Again, this brings us back to the beginning. This is what's true of you and me, of all of us, that God's wrath and curse is against this world and against sinners due to their sin. That is true. That's the bad news. But there is good news. And God requires faith in his Son and repentance unto life. And his disciples were uh, being sent to call those to repentance and to faith. That is what they are called to do. They are called to fish those souls out of the waters of God's wrath and bring them safely to the shores of his mercy. So how do these first disciples respond? That's the third thing we see. And what's true of their response and what's true of what our response should be? We see that they left everything behind. Simon and Andrew, they left their nets behind and they followed Christ. It's reasonable for us to think that James and John uh, maybe were even more well off Uh, than the others. We see at the end in verse 20 that uh, they had their father Zebedee, and together they had a successful fishing business. They were able to hire servants and hire other laborers to help them. But they likewise, they left their father, they left their successful careers behind. And this is what ties it all together. The message is that the kingdom is here, and so repent and believe in the good news the call is to follow Christ who himself is the good news in repentant faith. And so what then is the response? Well, let me think about it. Get back to me. It's not it. Scripture tells us that immediately they dropped everything behind and they followed after him. And that must be our response as well. They left family behind because they believed in the Son of God and the family that he, was be- that he was making. They left career behind because they saw this new gospel endeavor given to them. They left their livelihoods behind because the riches in Christ were so much greater than anything that they could have known. And so when Christ calls, what will be your response? will you be willing to leave whatever is necessary behind in order that you may gain Christ? Though it's possible and uh, it sometimes does affect our careers, I I don't think, though, that the point of application necessarily, it might be true, but it most likely, in fact, isn't that you will need to make some kind of career change. That's not the point of application. unless, Unless you're involved in some kind of criminal activity, or some kind of shady business dealings, or uh, if you uh, somehow work remotely for the Chicago Cubs. I don't know. If that's true, then, then you should repent. But we can actually make this much simpler. What is God calling us to? What is God calling you to? What is God's will for your life? It's repent and believe. That's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to turn away from our sin which always overpromises and underdelivers and turn and believe in the gospel which is more valuable than all the world's silver and gold. You cannot overestimate the worth of Christ. He's calling you to stop sinning with your thoughts and with what you look at online. And he's calling you to believe that pure eyes and a clean conscience are not only possible, but they are far more gratifying than any sin. He's calling you to repent and to stop and turn away from breaking that first commandment of putting any kind of idol before him. And to believe that he is worthy to make your life's greatest treasure. He's calling you to stop condemning yourself for past failures and to believe the good news that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's calling you here and now to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There you will find forgiveness. There you will find peace. There you will find joy and purpose in your life. And all that he has is yours if you would be willing to leave everything else behind and come and follow after him. That is what Christ is calling you to do. That is his calling to all of us this morning. the author of Hebrews. He says it so well. Uh, So what what I'd like to do is read this for us, a couple verses, and we'll close with this. Listen to these words. This is our takeaway. This is our point of application this morning. This is our prayer. This is what God is calling us to do. Hebrews chapter 12. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do it? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may this be true of us. We pray that we would lay aside in repentance every sin and weight that we carry. And may we in true faith look to you always. Jesus, we repent of our lack of repentance and, and we pray that you would strengthen our weak faith. But we know and we praise you that our salvation is not dependent upon our strength or anything in us, even the strength of our own faith, but it is is dependent completely upon you who call. And we pray this in your name, in your name alone. Amen.